This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Now, Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio. Good afternoon and welcome. It's Thursday. We focus on all things municipal. And with less than a month before our municipal elections, some members of the South Asian community are upset about the date. Diwali falls on October 24th, and it's a key religious and cultural holiday celebrated by Hindus, Sikhs, and Jains. The argument is that it's usually celebrated with family after work, and if people have to choose between that and voting, well, they'll choose family celebrations, and that could lead to a lower turnout and lower representation for these communities. On the other hand, the government says those who can't make it to the polls on election day can vote by mail at advance voting stations or by proxy. Also, municipal elections are fixed under a provincial act. So we'll get to that. Then there's the saga of the heritage designation denied for the old uh, factory that made China Lily soy sauce. Now, this factory, which was in Leslieville for seven decades before moving to Scarborough, has huge cultural significance for the Chinese community. We'll get into the details about why this designation was denied and what that actually means. But uh, for me, there's a broader conversation here because I think that we are turning our backs on preservation of our built heritage. Now, Toronto learned a lesson after some of our best buildings were destroyed in the 60s when everything was just being paved over. We brought in heritage, and in my opinion, and again, this is just my opinion, uh, it's under threat now usually in the name of building housing, but the affordable housing that we need is not what gets built. So I will want to hear from you on that. The number is 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740. And now it's time to tune into the town. Now I'd like to welcome Deputy Mayor Anna Bailau, Ward 9 Davenport, Councillor Brad Bradford, Ward 19 Beaches East York, and Councillor James Pasternak, Ward 6 York Centre. We have still serving city councillors today. Welcome and thanks for taking the time to join us. Thank you. It's great to be here. Okay, so let's begin with this business about the Heritage Preservation Act. We have an Ontario Heritage Act, and uh, I think people are turning their backs on it. And, you know, you can still build uh, on a building that has a heritage designation. You just have to preserve part of it, and that takes a lot of care. So uh, let's begin with Councillor Bradford. I think you're the closest, actually, to this spot. What, what do you think? Well, for sure. I mean, it's an, it's an East End landmark, uh, and it's been there for a long time, as you said, and there's definitely cultural significance uh, to the East End, to the Chinese community, and to the spirit and history of entrepreneurship um, that, that goes with that building. But at the end of the day, it's a conversation about the bricks and mortar that put that building together. Um, the cultural significance is, is a different conversation. And council, city council right now, uh, is trying to balance a number of priorities. And, and the biggest focus for a lot of us right now is housing. This is located, uh, you know, on higher order transit. You've got the streetcar in a growing neighborhood. And some of the challenges that come with heritage preservation, not insurmountable, but they do add challenging when it comes, it challenges when it comes to our ability to deliver more housing. Uh, so on a smaller 
sort of neighborhood-oriented mid-rise site, you start doing a lot of preservation of those bricks and mortar, uh, it becomes, you know, practically impossible to get these housing sites uh, developed, which is what we need when we're facing a housing crisis. So, uh, you know, there are other ways for us to recognize the historic contribution uh, that was made by this factory. There are other ways to recognize the cultural significance and entrepreneurial spirit of uh, Chinese Canadians, um, but it doesn't necessarily have to be attached to the bricks and mortar of a relatively unremarkable building on Queen Street. Well, um, there are historians who argue that it is important to preserve some physical space. And in fact, it's not like you have to save the whole building. You know, one part of the facade is usually enough to satisfy heritage demands. Anna Bailao, what's your view? Um, I think there's definitely, um, in many circumstances, architectural components of the building that are worth preserving. And, and I think that what we asked yesterday's staff is to see exactly what needs to be um, uh, commemorated and, and different ways to do it. I, I'm not an expert. Uh, I don't know if there is uh, uh, architectural components in this specific building. To me, at first glance, it doesn't look that way. There's clearly a cultural component that needs to be celebrated, maintained, and 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 promoted. Uh, but is there other ways so that we as a city can continue to balance all these priorities that we have and do a better job? I think you said something, Libby, that, that you're right. I think, you know, back in the 60s and the 70s, we did a really poor job of uh, preserving. And we're going back there. <laughs> we are totally going back there. I, I, I I think we need to make sure that we don't go the other way, right? I mean, we have done almost 2,000 properties in the last couple of years, right? So we have, you know, listed them. There's been a lot of work done in the last few years in terms of preserving heritage. But when you have huge environmental complexities that are facing our city, housing issues that are facing our city, we need to balance this and really see what are the landmarks that we need to preserve physically and what are the other ones that we need to find other tools to preserve and to commemorate. And I think that's the balance that, that we're, we really need to find in this city. Uh, James Pasternak, what is your view of this? And again, w- w- with the housing issue, it is always said to be about housing. We talk a lot about making housing affordable. And what invariably gets built is uh, something that you have to be really wealthy to be able to live in. Yeah, well, with this uh, particular situation, it just did not meet the the high threshold of the Cultural Heritage Evaluation Report and, of course, uh, the provincial statutes that govern it. Um, When you look at something that has historical significance, it it can't be just, um, you know, something historical occurred there. It has to have a, a sort of a historical facade or heritage attributes that are worth preserving. And this one just did not meet the muster. And... You know, the original owners that ran the factory there for many years could have put a condition of sale that it be preserved as is, but they wanted uh, the highest and uh, best value, and that the new owner uh, did not feel bound by, by any kind of historical significance. But, you know, the city must be robust in protecting its, its history, and we've done great work, uh, you know, when it comes to uh, Union Station and Old City Hall, People don't realize how close it was to Old City Hall being sold back in the 60s as part of the the downtown Young Street uh, Eden Center revitalization, but uh, community activists saved it. So it's a balancing act, and we can't just, we we can't run into a situation where we're tearing down historical buildings to build uh, housing when other vacant properties are available for that. That's what we've always done. Okay, I will move on. It is uh, something that I'm quite passionate about, obviously. Uh, Let's move on to the Diwali issue. What's your view of that? I I laid out the arguments, and I have to say, in terms of advanced voting, I got my voter's card yesterday, and uh, probably I would have opted for advanced voting, but I looked at the location, and it's like, uh uh-uh, no way, I'll be better off uh, going home in the middle of the day to vote. Uh, so what do you make of the uh, Diwali argument, Brad Bradford? 
Well, I, I'm cer- certainly empathetic. Uh, it's unfortunate that t- the timing that is set out in the Provincial Elections Act uh, lands with the conflict of Diwali. Um, and, and it's a really important day, of course, for the South Asian community here in, in Toronto and across, across the country. Unfortunately, from the city's perspective, that is not a date that we can change. It is it is set by the province, and, and we have to roll with that. Um, you know, we're at the doors, we're on the phones, we're online. Um, you know, lots of communication strategy, letting folks know all the different ways that they can vote this year. You've probably seen some of that stuff out in the wild. Um, and we've added an additional option for our election here in 2022, uh, where Torontonians can actually vote by mail now. That's a new option for us. Um, the deadline for that was September 23rd, but uh, again, that was well publicized. And advanced voting is coming up, where you've got uh, eight days where residents can go and vote throughout the day at a time that's best and most convenient for them. So I know the locations aren't always as convenient when we have, you know, 100 polls across a riding. Um, there, there's usually only two or three locations. Um, but there are eight days to get there. And so it's, you know, it, it might not be the most convenient. And again, it's very unfortunate that it's the timing has, has coincided here. Uh, but we do want folks to get out to vote. We are making sure that they know how they can vote. And we're sharing that message uh, widely and farly as best we can. Uh, Anna Bailau, I mean, the argument is that ultimately this could end up in less representation. And again, we're used to advanced voting, but, uh, you know, I looked at my advanced voting place and uh, it's in the middle of the Eglinton LRT construction. I'm not going there, you know. Yeah. And I I, so I don't know uh, where the others are, but but, you know, whoever picked uh, that particular place wasn't really thinking about helping people out. <laughs> yeah. And I think these are all really important points. And in particularly in municipal elections where the turnout is already so low, these decisions are extremely important. And I think there has to be a wider conversation about this. You know, at very often, at every election time, I ran three elections, and at every election, people always um, question, why are we voting on a weekday? There's so many other countries that vote on the weekend, and it's much, it's much better. Like, there, there's all these things that come up during the election time, and then we're done with the election, and that's it. Nobody else talks about it. But I think that when when you have low turnouts, and, and we're seeing now pe- so many people disengaged from the elections, I think it's time that we have these kinds of conversations, that we really understand, first of all, you know, there are very large communities that have these um, holidays that need to be taken in consideration. Uh, the timing like of the election, like should we have different days instead of just even saying it's an advanced voting, it's it's a different days. It's maybe a couple of days. The locations, where you're having the locations needs to be to make sure that, uh, that they are, um, uh, you know, Maybe we need more. Maybe we need uh, to to ensure that uh, to listen more to the communities and to have to do that work with the communities. All this impacts um, uh, as well. Not it's not the only the only thing, but it, I think it has an impact on the participation, and I think it needs to to uh, to be looked at. And so I do sympathize with with uh, um, the South Asian community, but I think it is a symptom of even something bigger. To be honest with you. Yeah, uh, I mean, Councillor Pasternak, I remember last time uh, some Orthodox Jews complained because it was on a holiday called Shmini Atzeret, which, uh, in my opinion, you have to be uh, pretty Orthodox to celebrate that one. Um, well. <laughs> uh, but still, uh, and on the other side of the Diwali issue is that's the actual day, but looking at a calendar of events, uh, I can tell you that uh, I'm going to be going to a fabulous Diwali party and it's not on the 24th, it's on another day and there are lots of other Diwali activities that are not on the exact date. So um, what do you think? Well, I I do believe that uh, these uh, elections, whether it be federal, provincial, or municipal, should uh, respect uh, and accommodate uh, holidays of religious significance. You are correct. There was There have been cases in the past where federal and provincial elections have been on uh, days of religious significance for the Jewish community. Um, It has gone to the courts. The courts were not overly sympathetic. Uh, They cited the advance polls and proxy votes, and uh, I don't know if there was mail-in at that time. 
so the courts were not on a side, but certainly when it comes to uh, changing the legislation so there's some wiggle room, so they can look at a cultural calendar and make sure they're not, uh, they're not scheduling it on a holiday of religious significance. And you could argue that, sure, some of the celebrations occur prior to the actual day and afterwards, but the actual day is, is when the religious observance occurs. And, uh, it, you know, adding voting to that to-do list, uh, and it may even violate the observance, uh, certainly in the Orthodox Jewish community it would, um, uh, it, it's just not right. It's not reflective of the society we're building. So we do need reform. Uh, on, on We don't need the rigidity that ex- currently exists uh, on, on religious holidays. And we need more flexible voting. I mean, Councillor Councilor Bylow is right. The polling stations are too scattered. The voting cards don't go out soon enough. There's not enough kind of media uh, or publicity for the upcoming election. We must get uh, more engaged with our with our various uh, populations because turnout uh, has been way too low, and having it on a religious holiday does not help. Well, exactly, and um, you know, I think there is often a feeling among. Um, you know minorities you know if it's christmas like you can't you hear about christmas for more than a month before that every day everything's shut down and other people feel that their holidays are you know not necessarily respected yeah i think that's right and in a city that is arguably the most diverse in the entire world where 51 of percent of our population is in fact actually born outside of this country uh we all need to be more thoughtful uh more accommodating and try and provide some more flexibility for for these sort of really important events if we want more engagement if we want more participation uh then that's on all of us to make sure that you know we're trying our best to to accommodate and provide that flexibility and and uh, the ironic thing is that i think that some of the uh immigrant communities and of course not all south asians are are immigrants are the ones who are more engaged in uh, in the process well i mean i would i would simply add to that conversation that uh, you know one of the great benefits of, of being a canadian citizen is, is is the right to vote and it's not just a right it's a responsibility because democratic traditions and institutions are only strengthened um, by the participation rate of its citizens so we want to do, as, as, as the governing uh, institution, we want to do everything possible to make it easier, more convenient, uh, and accessible to vote. Okay, I'm going to take a call from Sita in Mississauga. Hi, Sita. Hi, Libby. Thanks, uh, thanks so much for taking my call. Um, it's sad. The timing is not right for both Diwali and voting, but don't change the election date. It will cost ta- taxpayer money to do so. Also, it's a constitutional day. Um, Diwali falls on different dates every year. Hopefully, early voting can help. Okay. Okay, Sita. Thanks for your call. Okay. Yeah. And, uh, you know, to yes, it's constitutional, but there could be accommodation, you know, if somebody checked the calendar far enough in advance. And and speaking of, you know, a lack of engagement on civic issues and why that is, so I'm looking at the GTA now. Now, you, you're all City of Toronto people, but some of the mayors, so Milton's Gord Krantz, Oakville's Rob Burton, and Markham's Frank Scarpitti have been mayor for 74 years collectively. So is that perhaps the reason why people are not engaged? Well, I'll, I'll jump in. I guess um, uh, people see uh, longevity in politics as sort of entrenched political institutions. Uh, but, you know, we have to be careful about not taking an ageist um, a view of that if, if, um, if people are capable of, of, of running a city or, or governing or representing their local populations, and they continue to do a good job. Uh, their age is not not the issue. Um, I, d- I don't think it's the age. It's the amount of time in the seat. Well, I mean, we don't have term limits. So unless you're bringing in term limits, um, they have every right to run in each election. And obviously, they have the confidence of, of their local population. Um, that's, that's what a democracy is all about. 
Libby, I, I, I think that, you know, it's very um, difficult to unseat an incumbent, and yeah. in particular in municipal politics. And do I think that that has um, obviously an impact uh, in, in the turnout of the election? Uh, it does. It also has, I think, the kind of engagement uh, that that uh, that those candidates tried to have with uh, with their communities as well. Uh, you know, I, I can say here in in Toronto, right? You, sometimes you have more uh, exciting races and less exciting races, right? <laughs> I, for example, uh, in in the mayoralty race, I know that the mayor is is out there engaging. Uh, with the community, with with the communities, right? He's he's out there, and you know, you look at the media, and everybody's like, oh, you know, he he's probably a shoe in, is probably, but he's out there. He's out there. He's reaching. always out there, election or no. That's, I have that's to say, very true. That's very true. That's that's his nature of who he is. But he's he's out there. He's knocking on doors. He's going to small business. It's really important that 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 happens as well. Um, but I but I you know if when you don't. When when people uh, participate and they see the same result over and over and over again, I think it's human that people people feel a little bit um, disengaged if there's not an effort, a really strong effort, because it, it, it becomes a lot harder than to engage the people. Um, if once once they're disengaged, it, it, it becomes harder to get them engaged again. Well, and, uh, I mean, it, it it seems to speak of a certain kind of inertia. And, you know, some of these politicians that have been there so long, I mean, it's, you know what I mean? Uh, it's just, I think it is, to a certain extent, a, a, a disincentive for people to become involved. Well, I think I think there are folks who serve their communities. They do it well. Uh, they make the personal decision on on how long they want to continue to reoffer, and then ultimately voters decide. But you know, uh, I, I'm a first term councillor. I'm a lot better at the job today after you know four years of service than I was on day one. Made a lot of mistakes. Learned from those mistakes. You get better at it. Your mechanics better after more experience. A nurse is better with more experience. Doctors get better. Like that's that's pretty typical. Um, but I think it does get to a point, um, you know, where it is really important to have fresh faces and new ideas and and new energy coming to the job. And and you just see the world from a different perspective. You know, now sitting in this job, uh, in this chair as an incumbent counselor, uh, you know, I, I probably see it differently, uh, whether or not, uh, you know, you, you, you experience that and you try and be objective about it. But just inherently, I'm seeing the world as I experience it. But that's very different than the way other people experience it. So we need to make sure that, you know, elected officials and folks who are running for office are representative of all the different experiences in, in our municipalities, come from all different walks of life. And, and that's what elections are for. The The broader conversation about... Uh, you know, a lack of engagement. I mean, it's not just municipal politics. We're coming off of a provincial election where, you know, arguably the stakes were very high and we saw some of the lowest voter turnout that we've seen in years. So I think there are broader questions about the erosion of civility, the state of our democracy, the divisive nature of politics um, that we all have to sort of reflect on. Um, municipal politics, uh, you know, can park some of that partisan stuff and focus on on the big objectives in the in the neighborhoods and the communities and the cities. Uh, and it is an opportunity I always feel to have a more positive type of politics. Turn down the rhetoric, turn up the engagement, um, and we go to the doors to make that uh, that pitch every day. So you know, I hope that uh, that turnout improves in the fall. I know it's always a challenge, but. Um, every candidate, and there are thousands of candidates across the province right now, they're engaged in that democratic discourse, uh, in that dinner table politics, in that civic discussion every day right now, right up until October 24th. Uh, yeah, and there are uh, seven incumbent councillors, including Anna Bailau, who are not running again. So uh, just uh, off the top of your head, Anna, wh where do you think the, uh, quote, hottest races are? Um, well, uh, Willowdale is a hot race. I mean, there were some articles in the media today, and it seems like it's pretty 
close up there. Uh, uh, University Rosedale is another one. Spadina Fort York is another one. Um, Davenport is another one. I think uh, this is what happens when you have the you don't have uh, an incumbent running. Uh, very often they turn out to be quite competitive races, um, and uh, and and we're seeing some of that right now. Some of the most competitive races are in those open seats, and uh, and some of some of these that I mentioned are are you know really close races. So. Okay, well uh, a close race. Well, you know we we journalists love close races, horse races. Brad Bradford, which do you see as the hot races? Well, the the hot race for me is here in Beaches East York, and that's where my time and energy and focus is between Coxwell and Victoria Park. Uh, But, you know, uh, Anna was absolutely right. Those open seats are always hotly contested. You go down the ballot, there are some fantastic people here in Toronto who are stepping up to run. And, you know, I reflect on my experience from 2018. Uh, you know, I was going against a former uh, federal politician, member of parliament, very well known. Uh, and we had 37,000 votes cast in that election. And, uh, you know, I won by 288, 288 votes out of 37,000. So these can be really close races. Um, they are hotly contested. People put uh, their heart and soul into it and, and get out to the doors and make the case to the voters and the voters decide. Um, but I would say if any of those seven open seats uh, are hotly contested, they're all ones to watch. And we will have nearly a third of Toronto City Council will be new. I think that's great. I think that's a positive thing for our democracy and the evolution of our city, um, regardless of views, uh, you know, different political views. It's it's nice to have uh, new folks around the table um, and, and probably some veteran leadership back as well. Uh, and that continuity, continuity is good, too. So we'll have to see uh, 25 days to go and uh, we'll have a better sense of what council is going to look like on the other side. James Pasternak, Willowdale is uh, next door. Yes, no, we're watching Willowdale very closely because I chair uh, North York Community Council and I hope to chair it again next term um, if, if I'm successful at the polls. And uh, so whoever wins there will be sitting on North York Community Council. So we need someone who's, uh, you know, who's engaged, who's supportive, uh, who will align uh, with, with some of the important issues that we're dealing with. So we watch it very closely. But I did want to point out that when, when Anna and I came on council, there were, in 2010, there were 14 new councillors, and six incumbents lost in that election. And, of course, in 2018, there were four new councillors. And as we've mentioned a few times today, there'll be seven new councillors this time. So there is turnover. There is natural turnover, uh, whether it's a vacancy or whether an incumbent loses. Um, it, it may be difficult. Uh, to sometimes unseat, unseat an incumbent, but there is changeover, and it, it can be quite dramatic over a period of time. Yeah, and uh, I'm looking at the clock. We're out of time, but, you know, one of the things that I, I want to tackle, we've talked about the lack of civility, which is a huge issue, and we will revisit it. But, you know, this business about it not being partisan, in in this city, in a lot of these races, there's a very big left and, I don't know, center or center-right or whatever you want to call it, divide. And, uh, you know, I would argue that in a lot of places, the party politics or, or ideological politics really do play into it. Yeah, I, I agree. We might not have formal parties, uh, municipal, but they're clearly sometimes ideological uh, party do come in, <laughs> uh, even in municipal uh, politics. Is, it, it's more fluid. Uh, there's more cooperation because there's not that formal structure. So uh, I think Brad was right. Uh, many, many issues people collaborate uh, across ideological lines very often because there's not that structure uh, um uh, imposed on us, but uh, but there's 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 always some some camps, and sometimes it does come through. And uh, and with regards with with uh, civility and and some of these issues lately, it's um it, it was a tough term, Libby. Um, I think we would all agree. You know, people were were tired of the pandemic. There were you know all kinds of issues, um, uh, and uh, and it was definitely a, a a tough term. I mean, I've I've openly shared. I mean, I had my community office window broken twice. I had. Had, uh, you know, many of us had, uh, you know, protests and letters sent and people at our doors and, uh, you know, all kinds of stuff. And uh, that 
I never had this happen in my previous eight years, to be honest with you. So, yeah, and of course, John John Fillion, we, I'm going to have to wrap in a minute, who was not running in Willowdale. Well, I, people were shooting at his house. Yeah, exactly. I mean, <laughs> it's just, it is, it's, it beggars belief. Uh, we have to pick up this conversation, but not right now. In the meantime, thank you so much, James Pasternak, Brad Bradford, and Anna Bailau, and to James and Brad, uh, all the best to you in thank the you election. Much. You're running again, and that's a good thing. Thank you, Libby. Thanks very much, Libby. Thank you, Libby. Thank you, Libby. Thank you, yep. Take care, Anna, Brad. Okay, uh, we're taking a break, and when we come back, we will be talking to the financial accountability officer. He released a report yesterday, and he said, wow, uh, probably we have to pay public sector workers more if we want to get the numbers we need. We'll talk about that when we come back. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Zneimer on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. Ontario needs about 138,000 public sector workers over the next five years and may have to boost wages to get them. That is the conclusion of Financial Accountability Officer Peter Weltman. He's talking about personal support workers, nurses, child care workers, not top-level bureaucrats. And according to the Toronto Sun, overturning the infamous Bill 124, which limits a public sector wage increases to 1%, would cost the province $8.4 billion if a court challenge is successful. Meanwhile, the FAO says Bill 124 has allowed the government to save as much as $9.7 billion, and that is going forward a little bit as well, between 2019 and 2026, 27, which of course have not occurred yet. So now I am joined by Peter Weltman, Ontario's Financial Accountability Officer. Welcome and thanks for joining us. Thanks very much for having me. So uh, I'm curious about making uh, a judgment about whether uh, wages have to be boosted. To me, that's uh, that's somewhat of an ideological call. Well, we don't actually make that call. That, that seems to be how this is being reported. What we did is we looked at public sector compensation. It's a big amount of money. It's $48 billion. It was $48 billion last year on $180 billion in total spend. So it's 28% of the total spend. So it's a lot of money. And my job is to look at government finances, project them going forward, and tell MPPs what to expect. Okay, yes. So we look forward, and if we look at the existing scenario with, you know, wages basically being renegotiated based on historical wage rates and, and increases, which are around 1.7, 1.6%, uh, for, and then, of course, a lot of folks are going to have to be capped by Bill 124. Some already have been. Some are going into that three-year cap. We come out the other end in five years with a wage bill of about $57 billion. And then we took a look at that 57 and we said, okay, but we know that there are three big things going on that could have an impact on this. One of them is inflation, which I just talked about. So historically, over the last 10 years, wage rates for public sector compensation have lagged inflation, uh, and now inflation is even higher. So will that have an effect? And we model a scenario. Number two was... As you mentioned in the intro, there are a lot of new uh, program commitments that have been made by this government that will need to be staffed. You can build a hospital bed, but it's not useful to you unless you have staff to run it, as I'm sure everybody knows. So we anticipated over the next five years, 138,000 new positions, and people are going to have to be hired. So, of course, that adds to your wage bill. And then three, we have Bill 124, which is undergoing court challenge, which at the moment, as you said in your intro, will save us probably $9.7 billion over its lifetime if it should get defeated and needs to be repealed, the government might have to add another $8.4 billion to its wage bill over the next five years. Okay, so it's a net gain. So, it, well, <laughs> it depends how you look at it, I suppose. Yeah, I um, mean, uh, if you've saved 9.7 and it ends up costing 8.4, that's not very difficult math. So the difference is those folks, that difference is those who are non-unionized employees. Uh, and we, our assumption is that they would not be getting any kind of compensatory payment if Bill 124 should have to be repealed. So remember, there are a lot of ifs in here. 
But as we said, the law of the land right now shows that by 26, 27, we'll be at 57 billion. But the but the other law, the land, if you will, are all those extra positions that are going to have to be created and filled to be able to deliver on the promises of more, per, you know, more personal care workers in long-term care homes, more child care, more teachers, uh, more nurses, all that sort of thing. So that is definitely going to have an impact. Well, I've seen a number that the average public sector salary is is just under seventy thousand. And one of the things that I wonder about, you know, I I don't think it's fair to lump public sector workers all together because senior bureaucrats make a lot of money, but personal support workers don't even have full time jobs. That's right, and that's why it's always you have to be very careful comparing wages amongst different groups. We looked at the work that we do. National, you know, has to be at that high level. We look at averages, and averages can be misleading, as you pointed out. So certainly that's a caveat. The other thing to remember, too, is that it's the composition of the workforce that often determines how much they're paid. So if you have, for example, a, a bunch of computer scientists sitting in a room, they're probably going to get a little more money than folks who, who, who aren't, right? So it depends on those levels of education. That's why it's always a bit fraught to compare you know, average wages in one part of the economy with average wages in another. Yeah. Um, and uh, the number of workers that we need, I mean, we've been hearing about staff, staff shortages, especially in healthcare, care uh, for a very long time. And, and your numbers just confirm it. And do your numbers take into account burnout and attrition or just the new commitments that were made? We're looking at just the new commitment. It's pretty hard to calculate the burnout. That's a bit of a, you know, that's an anomaly that's happened largely because of COVID and all the pressure on the healthcare system. But we do note in the report that the vacancy rate in the nurse in the hospital sector is twice what it normally is. So, you know, you're always going to have a little bit of a vacancy rate regardless of what industry you're in. That's normal. But in this case, it's twice as high, which is not normal. I think, you know, the government's really come into, and it could have been any government, coming to a bit of a surprise. These these positions, if you will, we've known about, you know, issues around healthcare for a very long time, probably 40 years. These are easy enough to, to, to model. But what we didn't know is COVID and the impact that it would have on that workforce, the burnout, and then, of course, inflation coming on top 40 years. And, you know, we haven't seen this for 40 years, uh, which is something that is, you know, that the government needs to deal with that certainly wouldn't, couldn't have been really planned for. On the other hand, uh, that inflation is good for government coffers. They take in more money because of inflation. So uh, it, does that come into the calculation? Say, does, Is there any kind of head scratching and say, you know, we've uh, made a bunch more money because of this, so maybe we need to give back more? Well, that's a magic calculation lots of folks are making. That's not something we would have obviously yeah. done, but I think it's worthwhile pointing that out. The government did run a surplus last year. Now, we projected back in April that they would come pretty, you know, they would run a deficit, but they'd be running a surplus this year and, and surpluses for the next five years. So we've already said we think the government's in pretty good shape to run surpluses. The government announced a different number in their budget, a much bigger deficit. But there's definitely some room there. There's definitely what we call fiscal room. That is, revenues higher than expected. Uh, if they need to manage these challenges that I just mentioned, they, they have some room to do that. How they do it, of course, is up to them. Of course. Uh, can you remind us the size of these surpluses? So the surplus uh, this past year that finished was about two point, I think it was $2.1 billion dollars. And the government, and we had been projecting an $8 billion deficit, so there's a $10 billion swing. The government's deficit projection was even, was even worse. Uh, and largely because of revenues, revenues came in way stronger than anybody forecast, largely because of the ups and downs in the economy of COVID. And going forward, we expected in five years the government could hit about a $6 billion surplus. Now, that, that number is from last April. We'll be updating that number this coming October. The economic situation's changed a little bit, so we'll have to wait and see what, what our new number is. Yeah, the the economic situation is, uh, well, we just got a GDP numbers today, which were better than expected. And in the meantime, we have private sector economists who are predicting a recession. So how do you build uh, those conflicting things into your uh, projections? Well, that's the beauty of economics, right? There's <laughs> all kinds of projections and all ways of doing it. Uh, at the moment, we're not seeing a recession. Um, we're not seeing the robust growth that we had last year. 
uh, we're going to think growth will slow down. Uh, but again, you know, like I said, things have changed. Inflation has had an impact. Rising interest rates have had a pretty significant impact on economic activity recently. And some of that will get reflected in the October number. So uh, no, I can't give it away just yet. Okay. And what else would you like to leave us with? I think it's important that people understand that, you know, this is a significant amount of money that the government pays and that these are, these are you know, pretty serious, not serious, but, you know, costly risks to that, that forecast. So, they, you know, as a government, it's complicated. You have to deal with all this stuff. And what we try to do is we try to put out numbers that help people understand, you know, the costs of managing these sorts of pressures going forward. Because ultimately, especially with regards to the positions, those sorts of decisions made today are going to affect all of us, it's going to affect our, our health care, our education, and all that sort of thing. That's why it's important that the, you know, these numbers help inform that sort of debate. Okay. Peter Weltman, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me on again. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. We're taking another break, and we're going to continue the conversation about inflation. And a new poll is out today. Nine out of 10 households are tightening those belts because of inflation, because of a bunch of other things as well that are happening in the economy. Now, people, I want to hear from you. What are you doing in your own household budget? Last week, we were talking about food inflation and people's strategies to cope with that. Is there anything else that you are cutting back on? And, uh, you know, there might be things that suddenly people are spending more on because suddenly there's all this stuff that we can do again that we could not do during the pandemic. And presumably, uh, many of us save money because of all the things we couldn't do during the pandemic. But um, uh, so how do you balance that with the belt tightening? We will have a look at that. And we want to hear from you when we come back. Again, the numbers 416-360-0740, toll free 1-866-740-4740. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. We had some unexpected good financial news this morning. Economists had predicted the latest numbers to show the economy shrinking, but instead there was a 0.1% increase in GDP in July. Still, Canadians are tightening their household budgets to cope with inflation, higher interest rates, and not to mention big hits in their portfolios. So according to a new Angus Reid Institute poll, nine out of 10 of us are doing this. And I would like to hear from you about what you are doing to save a bit of cash. The number is 416-360-0740, toll free 1-866-744-740. Forty, And now let's go to Barry Choi, who is a personal finance expert. Hi, Barry. Good to talk to you again. Uh, so, Barry, uh, nine out of ten people are, according to this poll, are tightening their budgets. Is that what you're finding among your clients? You know, not just clients, friends, colleagues, everyone seems to be feeling it these days. You know, first it wasn't a big deal, but we've seen interest rates jump. Uh, we see inflation at all-time highs. You know, you just go to the grocery store, you start to wonder, is like, how much higher can these things go? So it's no surprise that people are cutting back. Uh, right. And uh, what are people cutting back on? You know, I think it really depends on the person and their financial situation. You know, I, I think the most obvious place that we're seeing prices increase right right now are grocery stores. Like, everyone needs to buy groceries. And, and you know, when you see your grocery bills go up $10, $20 each week, uh, I think people are looking in those places to cut back first because it's something naturally that happens every single week. Uh, but also, obviously, things such as major purchases. You know, at start, when the pandemic was starting to kind of come out of its face, just keep in mind the pandemic still going on, uh, people were still traveling. But now I'm hearing a lot less people talk about traveling. And I'm hearing a lot more people saying they're delaying major expenses, expenses such as home renovations or even like new laptops. Uh, yeah, that's that's interesting. What about all this uh extra savings. During the pandemic, we kept hearing about, you know, obviously, it's a tale of two pandemics. Some people hit really hard financially. A lot of people 
doing just fine. Thank you very much. There are people who kept on uh, with their jobs. They worked remotely or whatever uh, and banked a lot of money because there wasn't a lot to spend money on then. So there's this pent-up demand. We've seen like total insanity at airports, all of that. So what happened is all that extra money that we kept hearing about, is it all gone? I don't know if gone is the right word. So, so you know, you say the good point. During the pandemic, some people were able to, to get ahead because they were spending less, they were able to save. And they probably spent that money on other things. You know, maybe they used it to travel. Maybe they used it to those home renovations. But as far as money is now, maybe they're just seeing, it like, hey, you know what? Inflation's gone up. My savings rate isn't as high. Maybe I just need to not spend that money I saved to create that buffer. And unfortunately, on the other end of the spectrum, those people who have struggled mightily during the pandemic, and this is just like the double whammy. Now you've got inflation, costs are going up. Uh, they're struggling. So, so it's, it's a really weird situation we're, we're in right now that we haven't seen in quite some time. Okay, I'm going to take a couple of calls about that. We've got Mike in Clearview. Hi, Mike. Hello. I have a point of view from both sides of the coin here, and it refers to my actual financial situation. Uh, I bought a car, a brand-new car, just before the pandemic. Oh, good so for you. you it's probably worth more now. In my case, you get the, um, the warranty is uh, 60,000 kilometers or three years. Well, I wasn't driving, and I always like to get the three years and the 60,000 kilometers sort of to hit on the same day, or I feel like I've wasted something. So I wasn't driving throughout that pandemic, wasn't going anywhere, but now that it's over, I'm driving everywhere because my warranty is almost up, and I want to get my 60,000 kilometers in. So I'm spending money left and right on gas. It's not hurting me. I'm going everywhere. But if I get to a town somewhere, that's when I become cheap. I'll go to the restaurant, use the coupons, find the cheapest meal I can because I budget. So I'm kind of the opposite. And, and first things in the morning, I will always go to the local grocery store. You know, when they open up at 8 o'clock, go in to try to get the 50% off deals. Hmm. So I'll spend one way, but save the other. Okay, well, that sounds like a plan. It depends what's important to you. And it's working. Okay, thanks, Mike. All right, bye-bye. Bye. We've got Jim in Niagara. Hi, Jim. Hello. How are you today? Fine. Go ahead. Good. You're on the air. Uh, it, uh, the price of groceries, everybody keeps saying it's the price of diesel and you have to truck it. Now, 60,000 items in a truck, why are they going up 40, 50 percent? I was buying this copy rich creamer. It was a dollar ninety nine, and that was up like eighty percent. And I could see if the guy, the truck driver, is bringing one container to me, I could see the cost. But these grocery stores are just chalking this stuff up and blaming everybody else, and they're making profits hand over fist. They are making very good profits, and there are some politicians who are saying there's something fishy here. Uh, I I talked about this with a couple of economists a while back, and they said that there is no evidence of gouging. So I I don't know about that. But uh, Jim, I have to agree with you that there are some items that you kind of shake your head and saying, there's no way that it went up this much. And again, why are profits so high if uh, there's no monkey business going on? Well, well, that's it. Like, I don't see them raising my pension by anything, really. But the thing is, people have to remember, a truck brings in thousands of items, and the government should do something about the price of diesel, because you bring the price of diesel down, then they don't have to charge as much to deliver your goods to you. Like, they do everything about gas, but the truck drivers get, they got to pay that high price. Okay, Jim. That, that's all I want to say. Thank you so much. Okay, thank you, Jim. Uh, yeah, we we're talking about uh, two things, food and gas, Barry. Yeah, to be to Jim's point, you know, it's not necessarily just the truckers or the cut the price of diesel. You know, the cost to to manufacture the goods have gone up. You know, the war in Ukraine uh, really supplied 
slowed down supply chain across the world. Um, so, so yeah, you know, I do agree that like some prices have gone up seemingly higher than others, which seems a bit odd. Uh, but I don't think it's simply just the, the cost of delivering the goods to the grocery stores that have affected costs. But, uh, you know, I'm glad we're having this conversation because at least people really recognize it and they're doing something about it. Well, exactly. And supply chains were really dispru- disrupted during the pandemic. Our first caller, he said he bought a new car just before the pandemic. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if he heard me. I said, congratulations, because it's hard to get a new car because of a shortage of chips. And I've heard about of cars that are worth more than people paid for them I, for I that reason. I think the exact same thing. You know, the joke is used cars right now are arguably more valuable than new cars because a used car, you can literally buy it from someone immediately. But with a new car, you might have to wait a year because of supply chain issues. So the original caller could technically profit instead of keeping driving. It's like sell it if he doesn't need the car. So uh, it's, it's just kind of, you know, it's, it's an extreme circumstance, but it is comes down to supply and demand. I remember in the early 2000s, I was working in a computer store. And there's this giant fire in a, in a microchip uh, factory in in Korea, and overnight the prices of computers like doubled, and people don't realize that sometimes that it's, it's a legit reason. <laughs> Uh, yeah, it uh, it is a legit reason, and uh, that's really interesting about the price of used cars. And I know that uh, I've had offers on my little car. <laughs> no, <laughs> that's a whole other story. Um, what are some of the other things that, just before we go, Barry, that people can uh, cut back on without, you know, really feeling a pinch? You know, it's really hard at these times because if you're going to cut back, you know, you can only cut back on so many things. You know, me telling someone to cut back on your daily coffee that saves you $3 isn't going to make a huge difference, especially if you're already on a fixed income. And, you know, for people who are actually worth saving, you know, they're already probably cutting back on savings. So, so right now it's a very difficult time because there's no real solution. You know, it's easy for me to sit here and tell, oh, yeah, just increase your income. But in reality, how many people can actually do that? So I feel like right now where everyone's going to feel the pinch, uh, but you got to look at your individual situation and see what you can do and, and just figure it out. Like, again, I don't want to generalize these things because it is, I do recognize it's a very difficult time for many people. Mm-hmm. And uh, in terms of, uh, I guess, entertainment budgets, things like that, uh, it's funny that you mentioned the coffee. That's always, the, sometimes that's the first thing that financial planners bring out. You know, if you cut out that really expensive coffee, at the end of the month, you'd have something. You know, I do think that can help for some people, but try to tell that to someone who's on a fixed income, uh, who has already cut everything they possibly have, but they're still seeing inflation affect their their, their monthly budget, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Anyway, uh, Barry, thank you very much for that. That's always good advice to take a good look at the budget anyway, right? For sure. It always is. Okay. Thanks so much for that. No problem. Have a great one. You too. Bye-bye. That's all the time we have for today. Free for All Friday is coming up tomorrow. And some of you will recall, I told you that we lost a very dear colleague here a couple weeks back. So I will be at uh, the celebration of her life. And Bob Kompsik will be here tomorrow. And if you couldn't get through or you have something else you want to bring up, please call back tomorrow and we'll talk on Monday. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.